Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You know, uh, David Blankenhorn was smart enough to reach out to Bill Doherty, who'd been a longtime friend and collaborator with him, just to say, you know, Bill, what do you think about this idea? The the simple version of it is that Bill just said, okay, let me get involved in this because otherwise this could go Poorly. wrong. Yeah, exactly. And so it was one of his most sort of anxiety-inducing projects. And this is a person who's a master of crafting space for for, you know, empathy. But he did it, and the event was so powerful that he had a dozen or so people on each side um, came into the conversation very much suspicious of each other, came away from it, just sort of loving each other across the divisions. Yet two individuals who started a fairly famous friendship from that, um, fellow named uh, uh, Greg Smith, um, small former small town sheriff, construction worker, evangelical Christian, just voted for Trump, and Kuyar Mustafi, uh, uh, Iranian immigrant, uh, leader of local Democratic uh, Central Committee. Uh, and just voted for Hillary Clinton. And there was a moment in that first workshop where Greg wanted to ask Kuyar a question. And he approached him and he said, well, actually, I guess he was delivering the statement. He said, I can tell you, he said, my problem with Islam in four letters, I, S, I, and before he got to that last letter, Kuyar uh, sort of, you know, gently interrupted him. He said, my friend, I know what you're going to say. He said, but my religion has been hijacked by people who don't share my, my, my values. He said, can't you think of people in your religion who may have, may have hijacked your religion too? And Greg, you know, stepped back and thought about it, you know, people burning crosses on the lawns of, you know, black folks in the name of Jesus Christ and realized, oh well, yeah, I absolutely can think of people who've hijacked my religion. So at the end of the gathering, Greg and Kuyar stood up and formed the group that they'd made a promise to each other. They were going to work together to bring people together across these divides. Kuyar was going to pay a visit to Greg's uh, evangelical church, and Greg was going to pay a visit to a service at Kuyar's mosque. And so, you know, this was in one of many inspiring stories that came out of that first workshop. This week on Forward, National Ambassador for the largest grassroots depolarization organization in the country, Braver Angels, John Wood Jr. This week on Forward. It's my pleasure to welcome to Forward the National Ambassador for Braver Angels, John Wood Jr. Welcome, John. Andrew. It's so great to be able to see you in person, man. This has been a minute coming. I'm really happy about this. Yeah, I've been far too long. I'm super excited too. 
Uh, I have to say, you look like a celebrity, but I'm not sure which one. So you know. What do you get, my friend? Oh, man. Okay, well, I'll tell you. Okay, I'll tell you uh, what I get. So particularly when I had my hair uh, sort of faded down, uh-huh. um, uh, I got Tiger Woods. And if I had a baseball cap on, people would actually at airports stand in front of me. So if I had the facial hair shaved, yeah. hair faded down, yeah. cap on, people would come from behind me and stand in front of me and look right in my face to be able to tell themselves that I wasn't Tiger Woods. And when people found out my last name was Wood, then, you know, it made it even worse. People were like, oh, you got to be related and whatnot. And just, you know, one of my pet peeves is people putting an S on the end of my name. It happens about 50% of the time, even to this day, you know? So the Tiger Woods Association has, has been a consistent one. I, More, I, I can see it with a cap on. And you have this a similar athletic physique too, well, like yeah, the same build. I take that as compliment. Um, yeah, Tiger's great. Um, the other thing I get more recently is, I, I don't, I can't remember the name of the character or the actor, uh, but the dude from Bridgerton. Um, oh, wow. That's a compliment because he's a very handsome man. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I, I definitely take that one as a compliment. All I need You're is happily a, married, though, bro. <laughs> but all I need is a, true. But all I need is a dinner jacket and a horse. And I'm, uh, you know, British I'm, accent, I'm too. You got to have that, accent, too. Uh, helps. But, you know, yeah. Oh, so I'm a huge fan of Braver Angels, which is the largest grassroots depolarization organization in the country. And I think you actually go and lead these sessions and workshops where you take people and you try to make them uh, less uh, partisan, less in their own ideological corner. Um, So tell me about uh, the work that you do. Like, let's say, like, what's the number of people in the gathering? Uh, Like, how is it structured? Right. Definitely. Okay, so let me give you the layout. And I do have experience uh, uh, organizing workshops. My own primary function within the organization is sort of as a general strategist for the organization, broadly speaking, and of course, making the public case, uh, the media case and so forth for not just the work that we do with respect to the methodologies, but for the larger narrative and philosophy of American politics that we seek for our work to sort of sync up with, right, which I think makes uh it's a really good fit with forward i mean it's not that's exactly what i was going to say i mean i think what we represent in terms of the shift in the cultural paradigm of politics lines up very nicely with where you're coming from um but uh to answer your question we have a wide range of workshops and programs to say nothing of our live events media content and various other things uh so i'll give you a sense of kind of the spectrum of activities we have something called a depolarization, uh, depolarizing within workshop, which is basically taking a group of folks, and it could be you know a dozen, it could be four dozen or so, uh, and putting them through uh, outlining guided exercises for them that allow them to sort of monitor their internal dialogue, learning to sort of check themselves when they have a thought about somebody from the other side, immediately jumping to the sort of assumption that. This person is, you know, a racist or this person is, you know, a dirtbag commie or something and sort of giving them kind of the mental sort of architecture to affix a more nuanced understanding of who the human being is likely to be on the other side of an opinion. Uh, so that's about sort of internal mindfulness, if you will, with respect to polarization. OK, so so let's say an organization says, I sense that there's something amiss within mm-hmm. my uh, class, within my company or whatnot. Do they call you guys up? Oh, yeah. uh, 
That is awesome. Okay, yeah. so that's one is structured workshops. Uh, continue. Right. Uh, another we have is called Skills for Bridging the Divide. Uh, Skills for Bridging the Divide. And this is specifically about instructing people in rhetorical and communicative techniques for being able to have the difficult conversations, right? And so you learn the importance of I statements, you know, being willing to lean into your subjectivity as a way of demonstrating humility. So most of us will say like, oh, you know, it's just a fact that Obama was the best president for healthcare, or it's like, oh, you know, it's obvious that Trump is the best president for the economy. And, you know, uh, theoretically or hypothetically, either of those things could be true, but when you just put it out there as like, I'm obviously right about this, you put the other person in the defensive. So if you say, well, you know, in my experience, Obama's policies really I believe, made a I think, for, et cetera. Right, exactly. Suddenly you're inviting people to a conversation. Also, the importance of paraphrasing, being able to articulate the other person's point of view in terms that they themselves would resonate with as an accurate expression of what they believe, as opposed to just characterizing, say, somebody who's pro-life and saying, oh, you just don't think women should have a right to their to their bodies. Probably not how that person thinks about them themselves. But if you say something along the lines of, okay, uh, the life of the unborn is sacred to you, and that's why this position matters for you, then they at least can say, okay, I know you probably don't agree with me, but thank you for, you know, you're clearly hearing what I'm saying, right? So we have things like that. Our most famous workshop, the one that sort of started uh, the organization, originally is something called a red-blue workshop. This is something that is based off of principles of family therapy. It's essentially marriage counseling for Republicans and, and Democrats. Um, designed by Professor Bill Doherty, uh, who's co-founder of Braver Angels, uh, the University of Minnesota, a very uh, prominent uh, family therapist, incredibly uh, wise man. So, so cool that there's like a family therapist <laughs> who, deeply, who deeply. had been mediated all of these relationships <laughs> because there's a sense, yeah. and I've been saying this to folks, that Democrats are like the mom party and Republicans are like the dad party. <laughs> so it takes a yeah. family therapist to try and right, right. mend the fence. But uh, yeah, so, so how did that workshop get started? I think you're right about that. Um, well, the way that got started is the origin story of the organization itself. And, and what so, year was this? This was 2016, a month after the uh, after the election. So this, yeah, this <laughs> yeah, that December. was a time for a lot of people. Like, I mean, well, for me, mm. right after Trump won, I was like, what am I going to do? It's like, I'm going to prepare to run for mm. president. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, look, we we all one way or the, or the other. We saw what was going on in America. People like you, people like you know me and other folks and said, OK, you know, time for reasonable people to try and get involved. So the founders of the organization, David Blankenhorn, uh, formerly president of the Institute for American Values, uh, Bill Doherty, who I just mentioned, and also my colleague and friend, uh, David Lapp, uh, scholar um, and uh, activist in South Lebanon, Michigan. Well, David and David had a conversation after the election comparing how people were reacting in their own parts of the country. Blankenhorn is from Mississippi originally, but he lives here in New York. And uh, was just basically saying people here are distraught. People here are, you know, are are losing it. Whereas David Lapp in in Ohio, he said, well, in the time, you know, place I'm at, he said, people are over the moon. He said, most people just can't, couldn't be happier. You know, can't believe how, how great this is. And so they asked themselves the question. They said, you know, people are bitterly divided. Is it possible that, that Americans can still find common ground and connect, you know, maybe we should run an experiment and find out. And so they had this idea to go to a town, uh, to a place in Ohio, South Lebanon, Ohio, uh, a community that had literally just voted 50-50 for Trump and Clinton. And they decided to put together uh, just sort of a conversation over the course of, you know, a day or two 
bring people together and see if they could sort of hear each other out and understand why they came away voting the way that they did. And uh, problem is, is that David and David are not, um, you know, uh, program designers, scholars and intellectuals and so forth. Uh, and so David David just figured they'd throw a bunch of people into a room together and see what happened. Talk. <laughs> right. But, you know, uh, David Blankenhorn was smart enough to reach out to Bill Doherty, who'd been a longtime friend and collaborator with him, just to say, you know, Bill, what do you think about this idea? And Bill said, Jesus Christ, this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> you know, got to take people who've just come through sort of a, a universally traumatic, you know, sort of experience and throw them in a room together. This has to have some structure and some design. And, you know, I, the, the simple version of it is that Bill just said, OK, let me get involved in this because otherwise this could go poorly wrong. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it was one of his most sort of anxiety inducing projects. And this is a person who's a master of crafting space for, for you know, empathy. Um, and dialogue, but he did it. And the event was so powerful that yet a dozen or so people on each side um, came into the conversation very much suspicious of each other, came away from it, just sort of loving each other across the divisions, realizing they had deep common interests, deep common commitments to their community. Yet two individuals who started a fairly famous friendship from that, a um, fellow named uh, uh, Greg Smith, um, small, former small town sheriff, construction worker, evangelical Christian, just voted for Trump, and Kuyar Mustafi, uh, uh, Iranian immigrant, uh, leader of the local Democratic uh, Central Committee, uh, and just voted for Hillary Clinton. And there was a moment in that first workshop, and I wasn't there, but this is in the lore, <laughs> you know, of, of Braver Angels, where Greg wanted to ask Kuyar a question. And he approached him and he said, well, actually, I guess he was delivering the statement. He said, I can tell you, he said, my problem with Islam in four letters, I, S, I, and before he got to that last letter, Kuyar uh, sort of, you know, gently interrupted him. He said, my friend, I know what you're going to say. He said, but my religion has been hijacked by people who don't share my, my, my values. He said, can't you think of people in your religion who may have, may have hijacked your religion too? And Greg, you know, stepped back and thought about it, you know, people burning crosses on the lawns of, you know, black folks in the name of Jesus Christ and realized, oh yeah, I absolutely can think of people who've hijacked my religion. So at the end of the gathering, Greg and Kuyar stood up and formed the group that they'd made a promise to each other, uh, uh, Kuyar, they're going to work together to bring people together across these divides. Kuyar was going to pay a visit to Greg's uh, evangelical church, and Greg was going to pay a visit to a service at Kuyar's mosque. And so, you know, this was in one of many inspiring stories that came out of that first workshop. And what happened after that, as I understand it, is that uh, the show basically went on the road. Uh, they commissioned a bus, David, David and David and Bill, a small crew, which included my colleague Kieran O'Connor, who I think you know, um, and um, April Lawson, who's become a huge part of the organization at the heart of the organization since then, was working as a journalist for David Brooks at the New York Times. She embedded on the bus. And basically NPR picked up the story and the word got out as to what this group of people were doing. They went from Philadelphia uh, to Tennessee, I believe, um, just up and down, you know. So at that time, Braver Angels was called States. Better Angels. Was it called Better Angels during the bus tour? They had, didn't have a name yet? I think that it did become Better Angels during the bus tour. Um, Better actually, Angels bus tour. Better Angels bus tour. That's right. And so they became sort of first responders for communities suffering from polarization. People would call them and say, hey, 
you know, we're going to we need can't... a big bus. Exactly. <laughs> we, we, you know, we can't, uh, you know, function in our PTA meetings. Our neighborhood is telling it's tearing itself apart. Can you come by and help us? But at each stop, they were not just holding the workshops, but training volunteers to be able to do the workshops for themselves after they left. Right. And so Incredible. That, that became the beginning, not just of our you know larger reputation, but of our volunteer and membership base as well. And so. All that happened over the course of the summer of 2017 before I even got to the organization or had heard of it. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's the origin story of what at the time was Better Angels. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free? Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So was this during the time that you were running for Congress? <laughs> Is that right? No, no. I actually had run for Congress in 2014. Yeah. So in 2014. You were so young then, man, because you're young now. Yeah, I was really young then. Um, yeah, 2000, <laughs> 2014. Yeah, man. I, um, I was the youngest active nominee for Congress in the state of California. I ran against Maxine Waters uh, in that Are these 21? Is that right? A little older than that, um, but I would have been 26. Uh, I think I was 27 on election day. Yeah, but I started campaigning when I was about 26 or so, um, early in 2013. Nobody knew me. Nobody knew a damn thing about me. You know, uh, I had zero reputation, zero resume, you know, but I was somebody who so, had. So that's a very yeah. bold move to mm -hmm. run for Congress I know you can't in relate. your mid late you can't 20s. Relate to, can't, you know, I can't to relate to boldness right. like that. <laughs> Wait your turn, young John. No. Um, so yeah. uh, what pushed you in that direction? And mm -hmm. I know you have something of like, a, I want to say um, like music in your family. You're mm -hmm. apparently a very talented uh, performer yourself. Thanks, um, and, and I think that one of the, that there's like this strange overlap mm -hmm. between certain forms of performance, mm. uh, let's call it actor, musician, comedian, like just standing mm. in front of a stage and right. uh, trying to create an experience for mm. a group of people, right. and then politician. Uh, <laughs> so was there yeah. like a performance arc for you when you were young? Because it's highly unusual, obviously, to run for Congress in your mid to late 20s. You know, you're the only person who's ever interviewed me who immediately made that connection. Um, 
yeah, so I grew up in a musical family and the cultural sort of connection of my family that was made possible through music had everything to do with sort of what served as the backdrop for my candidacy. So when I uh, was running for Congress, I, you know, people would ask me. And this was in L.A.? This was in Los Angeles, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Which is where you grew up as well. That's correct. Yeah, I grew up in Los Angeles. And, you know, whether I was speaking to a Democratic-leaning black church in South Central Los Angeles or to, a, you know, White Tea Party Club in South Bay, LA County, people would ask me, they'd say, well, the age of 26, you know, what on earth makes you qualified to represent a district as diverse and complex as the California 43rd. And I would tell people, well, I come from an interesting family background. My uh, mother is a liberal black Democrat from inner city Los Angeles. My father's a conservative white Republican from Tennessee. I grew up explaining my mother to my father, my father to my mother, and that's why I can represent all of you. And so, you know, that always serve for a laugh and to sort of contextualize my my message. You lived braver angels. <laughs> That's yeah. why you're the national ambassador today. Sorry, continue. Well, uh, but uh, my parents met through music, uh, really. Uh, my father's a jazz pianist. Uh, my mother's an R&B singer. She danced on Soul Train, uh, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, my grandfather, they met my grandfather's recording studio. My dad was uh, running it as an engineer. But my grandfather owned the biggest independent record label in America in the late 50s uh, and was still president of it in the early 60s, uh, Dot Records, which had 36 million sellers. It was Pat Boone's record label, along with Lawrence Welk and Billy Vaughn, Del Vikings, Gail Storm, folks like that. And before that, Grandpa started the first radio show in America sponsored by a mail order record shop he owned of the same name uh, that broadcast to broadcast rhythm and blues and gospel music, basically black music to a national audience. So Grandpa was a white man, uh, but he had a deep love for black culture and black uh, black music. And so that signal traveled clear across the South. It launched the careers of Mahalia Jackson, Arthur Alexander, Fats Domino, um, who loved my grandfather very much. Solomon Burke did also. Uh, uh, Bob Marley recorded his uh, early hits at a recording studio called Randy's. On a clear night, the signal would travel from WLAC in Nashville all the way into Jamaica and the islands. And so uh, it was heard there, too. And so Marley recorded some of his early hits in a studio named after the radio show and indirectly after my grandfather. So I grew up as a singer, as a trumpet player, you know, uh, even as something of a rapper. And the truth is, is I never made a career out of it, but I was surrounded by professional musicians and artists. On my mother's side, one of my uncles is Mac Tan of the West Side Connection, which was Ice Cube's group after he left NWA and so forth. You got, you know, artists in every direction. Uh, but as a jazz player, you know, the focus is on improvisation. And I always had a process, uh, you know, I was playing on bandstands at the age of 12 and whatnot with my dad and his band and my little brother. Um, and I always had a process where, you know, when, I, when my solo was coming up, I would sort of hear the changes, uh, you know, in the in the music, feel the chords, the piano, you know, rhythm of the bass and so forth. And I would sort of imagine my solo inside of myself, you know, before I played it. And I would sort of imagine it and feel how it was going to make the people in the audience feel. And then I would get up and I would just play what was on the inside. People frequently ask me, they say, you know, man, how long does it take you to write a speech? I, you know, I was able to run that campaign for Congress in part just because I was a better speaker than anybody else, better on a stage. And my answer to that question is that I never write speeches. You know, um, I just if I you write a speech, there's a there's a tip for anyone out there. Mm -hmm. Let's say you have a speech to give. Yeah. Here's a list of things not to do. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Yeah. The worst speech you can give is a speech that you've written ahead of time that you deliver word for word. Right. It's very, very hard for that to be a good speech. Yeah. So to your point, if you haven't mm-hmm. prepared something, obviously you get rid of that as a pitfall. <laughs> well, yes, but but your your point is relevant because, you know, I do think that people who write good speeches have an outline, they have an essential structure, but ultimately, you know, they're able to preserve some spontaneity in the delivery. They feel alive. They feel actually like they're speaking to you as opposed mm-hmm. to... Uh, reciting. I mean, think of if you were going on a date, you know, think of you're taking you're taking someone out. You're trying to establish uh, a connection. Right. I mean, you might have something of sort of a game plan. Going I hope into not. It. I mean, I never did. Well, I mean, <laughs> me, me neither, actually. But, you know, but point being that, you know, if you're like reading from a script, you got some obvious sort of formula and so forth. There's not going to be any connection there because you're not feeling anything. You're, you're leaning on. This a, is something I really struggled with on the presidential man, because mm-hmm. like, you, you know, you'd hear these stump speeches over <clears> and over again from these candidates. They weren't quite word for word, but they were close and, mm-hmm. and they were just such performances and not even great performances a lot of the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Right. Um, yeah. uh, so continue. I can imagine 26 year old you holding your own just because you were a better speaker, mm-hmm. like had more presence, seemed more composed, better thought out. And, and I deeply studied. I deeply studied, you know, not just issues in politics, but philosophy, religion, history. And it's funny because I was a shit student, Andrew, to tell you the truth. I actually almost dropped out of high school. Another thing that people assume about me, because I, I speak at universities across the country, I work with, you know, sort of elite academics and, you know, psychology and political science and journalists and get to hang out with folks like you. People tend to think that I must be some Ivy League guy. And I've got a little bit of that in my family. But man, I to this day, I don't have a college degree you know, uh, which tends to shock people. And uh, like I said, I mean, I, you know, I think my GPA graduating high school is like 1.8. I feel like technically. So what were you doing instead? <laughs> because clearly you were doing something. Was it music? Was it sports? Was I, it girls? I, was I it was, hanging out? Like, what I, was it? I, I wish it was girls. It was not, you know, no, I, uh, I wanted it to be girls at the time. Um, I was studying. I was reading. I was just studying and reading the things that I wanted to wow. study and read. You were actually like genuinely to, intellectually yeah, inquisitive yeah. and you're like, oh, this is science stuff. Pass. And then you just went off and read something well, else. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I'm not necessarily advising that for people who've got, you know, students and, you know, kids at home who they, you know, I mean, I'm saying not saying the good grades are important and so forth. But, you know, it really was exceedingly difficult for me. Uh, to sort of fit into the regimentation of you know the school environment, and yet I loved studying. I buried myself in books constantly, and uh, would just look at my assigned homework and be like, "Yeah," and would just keep reading, you know, whatever it was, autobiography, Herman Malcolm Hess, X, uh, yeah, know, whatever it was, David Copperfield, Charles Dickens, uh, Lord of the Rings. But I would write too. I mean, I was constantly writing stories. I would write essays for myself <laughs> sometimes. Um, now, part of the reason I was like that was because my parents did divorce when I was fairly young and living in my father's house was like was he raised us in a, in a time capsule um, as a whole other subject. But my dad has deep sort of, you know, uh, antipathy towards a lot of modern technology and modern popular culture. And so I grew up sort of only being able, at least in my dad's house, 
to watch like you know old movies. I grew up on on you know music from the fifties and sixties. You do have this Humphrey old Bogart school films, Cary Grant energy. Uh, You're like a classic, <laughs> and then the jazz well, musician, and yeah. then the steeped in mm-hmm. Cary Grant films. It sounds like there's there's yeah there's there's a reason for that. The Rat Pack and so on and so forth. Yes, because I um, yeah wasn't allowed to play video games uh, at least in my dad's house. Um, my aunt, this is a terrible story, but my aunt got us, uh, got me a Mac, uh, an iMac, you know, when it you know, first came out, I think it was in seventh grade or something. My dad took it sold, uh, and sold it and bought a Selectric 3 typewriter for me instead. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, but all of that did sort of force me to be deeply acquainted with certain subjects and parts of America's cultural and social sort of history and past, which ironically made it, gave me a clear pathway towards sort of understanding many older Americans. And <laughs> yeah, I can see Americans, that. I can, I can see how you'd, um, you'd be able to click with them. So, yeah. so, And I guess it influenced my larger presentation as well, perhaps. <laughs> so you're a poor high school student mm-hmm. and then you try out college and it's also not a fit? You know, I think I probably spent like, uh, the better part of like seven uh, inconsistent years trying to get through community college and never got, never, I think I'm probably like six credits away from a degree, but if I got it ne- from like my associates, but if I got it now, it would mess up my whole story, you know? Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. not wouldn't be, very productive. It wouldn't be worth it at this point. No. <laughs> um, so what then? So you're an mm-hmm. indifferent community college student. Yeah. Um, how do you go from your early 20s to running for Congress? Like, what, what does that time look like? Yeah. So, OK, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll speed through it. But I, um, I, I worked for Barack Obama's campaign in 2008. I'll tell you, I was an activist in high school. I gave my first uh, public speech uh, opposing the Iraq war at the Culver City City Council Good call. meeting. Yeah, at the Culver City City Council meeting where the city council ultimately approved the resolution in opposition to the war. And, uh, but when George W. Bush was reelected in 2004, I grew up very much considering myself to be uh, sort of a liberal uh, uh, Democrat. And um, when he was reelected, I just thought, okay, system doesn't work. All my hard work was for nothing. Um, I was jaded at the age of 17. I was five days. Interesting. I was five days too young to vote. Uh, Birthday is November 9th. And, uh, so without ever having been able to vote, I wiped my hands of politics and I said, I'm done because, you know, privileged uh, suburban, like, you know, millennial kid, you know, thinking like he'd suffered too much to, <laughs> you know, continue the fight. And so, you know, and I might have stayed done if it weren't for the fact that um, my progressive aunt called me, my father's sister. Um, my father is, you know, at this point, very pretty conservative. His sister is very left leaning. My mother's more liberal. Her brother is very conservative. So, you know in all directions. And she told me, she said, there's this young guy. She said, he's a new, he's the Senator of Illinois, from Illinois. She said, this was actually in 2004. She said, he just spoke at the democratic convention. She said, he's amazing. I think he could be our next, next, uh, our first black president. And she was like, have you seen him? I was like, uh, no, who are you talking about? She was like, ah, oh, his name is funny. I don't know how to pronounce. It. She said, I think it's, it's Barack, Barack Obama. And when she said, I was like, Barack I was like, how are you going to get to be president with a name like Barack You know? Uh, but when I checked him out, 
uh, I sort of you know heard his story, his his family, his, you know, his white mother from Kansas, father from Kenya, sort of. Oh, I can see why this would key in. Well, and his just his deep emphasis on sort of humanizing the fuller spectrum of yeah. identities in American life, and I was I was taken with that. I was like, sure, Damn, you know, this guy is really speaking like to the heart of you know what I what I believe. And so I threw myself into Obama's campaign as just as sort of a foot soldier, you know, canvasser and just talking people's ears off uh, about about hope and change. After he was elected, I sort of committed to myself that in whatever way I could, I wanted to advance this cultural movement, which for me was about building towards a post-partisan, post-racial America. I was sick original of the original promise of uh, of the Obama 08 campaign. Yes, exactly. I was I was you know sick of the hate. I was sick of the narrow-mindedness. I was sick of people's inability to listen to each other. Not just in America, broadly speaking, but even in my own family, because I had grown up in the sort of intersection of a lot of the cultural divisions that were you know becoming more and more visible across the the, the country in many respects, and so I a lot of things happened simultaneously. I had made it a point to start studying conservatism and paying much deeper attention to what Republicans were talking about than I had before in an effort to understand conservatives so as to be able to bring them into this, this fold. At the same time, uh, I had met a woman from a traditional black Baptist background in inner city LA, uh, married her, experienced something of a religious conversion. Uh, I had been very sort of anti-organized religion, but after sort of a series of experiences, reading the Bible from cover to cover, I came away with my own interpretation of it that made it sort of deeply resonant. Uh, and we moved to Colorado Springs because she joined the army. We joined a messianic synagogue, which I don't know if you're familiar with messianic Judaism, but it's essentially Judaism that uh, takes on board the idea that, you know, Jesus Christ is Messiah, but preserves all of the culture and ceremony and a lot of larger theological sort of interpretations. And my wife was very, was very enmeshed in that uh, for a time. But suffice it to say that suddenly, you know, I was in a context where all my friends are soldiers and religious people, you know, the institution, community institutions of both the military and faith-based communities were there. I was studying economics in a way I never had before and wound up being impressed by a lot of the arguments. Read Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, cover to cover, Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand, and so forth. Started studying, and this was another key, African-American history from a more conservative vantage point and developed some skepticism with respect to the impact of the welfare state as it has been constituted at least, you know, on the interest and the community cohesion of black and inner city communities, and also came away with a point of view that recognized the fact that the greatest political advancement in terms of civil rights of African Americans in this country had taken place within the within the 35 year period of American life where you actually had bipartisan representation of the black community, right? You actually had black Republicans and Democrats in significant numbers from the New Deal era to the to the end of the civil rights movement. I look, I did not like the way they were talking on Fox News. I didn't like the tone of like Sean Hannity's like, you know, rhetoric. And I, I thought that there's so much that was divisive and toxic on, on both sides. And, you know, I didn't think of myself as falling in love with the Republican Party, but I suddenly thought of myself as really seeing a lot of deep value in many conservative ideas. And I thought to myself, you know what? And I wasn't too impressed with kind of the Obama administration's economic performance, but I still loved Obama and I still loved his original message. And I thought, you know what, maybe if I were to take on board, you know, sort of 
an identification with the Republican Party, going to the fact that I agree with a lot of these ideas and sentiments, but still let people know that I'm still coming from the same place as somebody who not only wants to build these bridges, but who has a deep relationship to the black experience, the inner city experience, the multicultural experience, and who who wants to elevate the positive values of those spaces as well. Maybe I could be a bridge for each side to relate to and empathize with the other, black and white, left and right. And so then it was just a question of how can I go about doing that? And I thought, how oh, about the hell, I'll run for Congress. I'm not likely to win, but you know, I'm confident in my abilities and I think that I can make an impact on how people think. And who knows what that might lead to. And so it just so happened when we moved back to Los Angeles that that put us in Maxine Waters <laughs> district, uh, which meant that I was running against somebody who was formidable to say the least in terms of her political machine. But um, it, it was an opportunity that I took and it set the stage for everything that followed. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So after that race, uh, there's like a multi-year period uh, before Brave Angels yeah. even forms. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it sounds like somehow you're still activated in trying to uh, bring people together, mm -hmm. uh, which brought you to uh, Braver Angels several years later. Right. Yeah, that's right. So the way that worked was in the aftermath of the 2014 election, um, you know, and so, you know, obviously I lost, but although it's a low bar, I did better than any Democrat or Republican had ever done uh, before me or after me, for that matter. I, I still have done better running against Maxine Waters than anybody else has ever challenged her. And I raised all of $10,000 in that race. Others have raised millions and so forth. Um, but I was elected. I was very popular within the GOP in L.A. and, and I would and bet, man, California. you're like a dream. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, National Review wrote an article about me called John Wood's California Dream, uh, which was sort of my first introduction to any, you know, bit of national recognition. Um, and uh, but I tried to bring a sort of a, you know, a fraternal spirit uh, to 
to political culture within the institutional Republican Party as it existed in California and Los Angeles. I wanted to move towards a place to where we could compete with Democrats, we would be competitive, but we were also looking for opportunities to engage with them in public conversations, to be able to explore issues together and see if we could maintain competitive fervor while still strengthening relationships between communities. What wound up happening was that I <laughs> I had people who wanted to run me out of town from within the party on the basis of the fact that I was too friendly with the wrong Republicans. <laughs> because at that time, there was a deep and bitter, and this, this was you know across much of the party across the country, but certainly in LA and California, uh, there was a deep and bitter sort of you know civil war between the more sort of establishment and kind of traditional conservative crowd on the one hand, and the young multicultural uh, Ron Paul wing libertarian uh, crowd on the other hand, uh, and I stepped into this race to you know help lead the LA County Party, sort of having been drafted by the more establishment side, but not really knowing how deep the feud was. And so I ran a campaign that was about bringing those sides sure. together. Yep. And it worked for me as a candidate for that party office. But afterwards, it was sort of sort of made clear to me that like, yo, that's not going to work like as a way of doing business here, you know, and so you, I, you know, what, yeah. one uh, aside, but this is something I'm um, very certain of. Mm. There are really, really talented uh, principled congressional candidates mm. who lose uh, that we don't hear enough from. Yeah. Um, like I, I've spoken now, I endorsed a couple dozen at least uh, in 2020, most all of whom lost because I was endorsing folks mm -hmm. who were kind of, yeah. uh, you know, outsiders or, um, you know, running in districts that were very unfavorable to them. Mm -hmm. um, You're endorsing people like me, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, and yeah. Some of them, like virtually all of them, I thought were really, really impressive humans. Right. And I'm going to suggest even that if you decide to run a race that you are likely to lose, mm. um, that takes like a different type of uh, fortitude and uh, motivation. It's like, yeah. this is not a careerist move. This is like a, hey, I'm going to do it uh, because it's the right thing. It does if you're if you're serious. There are people who run as perennial candidates who just sort of you know get addicted to it as, you know, their one way into some semblance of the spotlight. But for people who really commit to making an impact, knowing they're going to lose, it takes believing in something beyond your own advancement. And and, and and they you know they I mean they they think that if everything breaks right, they're going to win, mm -hmm. uh, but it's unlikely most of them do lose. Right. Um, so I have a friend who is an investor type, and he says he constantly tries to find these people and have them work in uh, nonprofits that he's on the board of because mm -hmm. they're very talented in that regard. One person whose story um, this reminds me of a little bit is Crystal Ball, yeah. who uh, people you know may or may not remember, but mm -hmm. she was a young congressional candidate in a red district, yeah. and I think yeah, it was, was Virginia, and lost, and then wound up on MSNBC briefly and then, you know, was, was uh, like uh, cast out for being too independent minded or something right. like that. And now she's yeah. <laughs> you know, now, now she's um, blazing an incredible trail. Mm. Uh, I was I was inspired by her example. Yeah. Um, so, oh, Chris will be uh, pumped to hear that, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I've but, never met her, but that. But, yeah. but there I mean, she you did. should you should visit with them. They're yeah. great people. Her and, and Sagar, I think, are some of the you know mm. best. Uh, voices on current events today. Mm. Um, 
but that there, it's not just you and Crystal though. I mean, I spoke to so many people who resemble this that I thought like, wow, this person uh, is incredible and they could be, you know, running more than frankly, like, you know, representing a congressional district. Like I'd put this person uh, in, in charge of all sorts of stuff, but our, our system doesn't really allow for a path forward for a lot of those people because let's say that you're in the minority party in a district. Uh, let's say you run for Congress and lose. And then uh, what's the next step? It's like, well, you know, like you can't just keep running for Congress over and over and losing. And if you're in that community and your party's not in power, then, you know, there's not much of a, an opportunity for you. So a lot of times you like just leave politics altogether, mm. I'm guessing. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, that 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 tends to be the way of it. You have good people who, who step in for a moment. Um, they are people who are probably very competent in their own areas of life, their own professions and so forth. Very often so, yes. And, 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 and very often people who therefore uh, or at least I would say not unrelated to that, also buy in a little bit less to the tribal sort of narratives around which the party structures Probably also of true, yeah. congeal and, and, and derive a lot of their sort of moral authority. And what happens is people experience the toxicity, they experience the ugliness, you know, they find themselves getting pushed into positions. There are a lot of excellent they, people who see this stuff too and are like yeah. hard pass. I'm not going to put myself through that. Well, that's what it is. It's either hard pass and they don't run or they do run and they get a taste of how nasty it is, how little they're actually in a position to do. And then it's like, why continue yeah. with this? You know, and these are some of the people who you really do in an you ideal wish world. wish we're actually in, in want. positions yeah, exactly. of authority. Right. So, you know, what I tried to do was, so I left kind of, I'm still a registered Republican to this day, um, and 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 happy to be so. I mean, you know, if you want, we can talk about the larger sort of space there. But I left uh, active sort of you know employ with with the party, um, and um, launched uh, sought to launch a digital media network uh, that was meant to lift up voices. Uh, not left or right, but left and right voices who would disagree with each other on called? politics, but who agreed on how we ought to treat each other in politics. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the question of what it is called, I can't give you the answer to that question because of how the project ultimately ended. It was sort of stepped on by a multi-billion-dollar you know corporation that didn't like the fact that the name of our <laughs> network was somewhat close to theirs, even though we were dealing with news and information and they were dealing with, you know, baseball caps and basketball jerseys and other things. And so I, um, you know, wound up sort of feeling like I was at a low point. I mean, I'd run for Congress. I had, you know, served as vice chair of the LA County Republican Party, which came with a fair amount of, you know, accolades and some degree of prestige, but it was actually a volunteer position, right? I didn't get paid for any of that. Uh, I was juggling multiple part-time jobs with first, yeah, you know, family support. first one little kid and then two, yep. you know, uh, living, uh, well, we still live, but living in a, you know, little apartment in South Los Angeles. And, um, you know, wife very much sort of like, hey, John, at a certain point, you know, I know you have this dream of, you know, kind of changing, changing the 
political discourse and culture of America. Reaching the conscience together, of, and, of yeah. American democracy. But at a certain point, you're going to have to consider just getting a regular nine to five, which I do about as well with regular nine to fives as I did in you know, high school. In, <laughs> in high school right? Exactly. Uh, but, you know, it was around. So, you know, I had sunk a year of my life into getting this media network going only to have it kind of snuffed out just as it was starting to get some traction. But then a friend of mine pointed out to me the existence of an organization called Better Angels. Now, the thing is, is that my concept for a media network was always meant to jump off the screen. The idea was to be able to build up a cross-partisan, cross-cultural following, right? That would which, see, which, by the way, just a brief yeah. thing, is kind of what I'm doing now with yeah. Forward, like, mm -hmm. you know, this podcast and everything mm -hmm. else, where all politics is tribal and there's this massive tribe that's not spoken to or for. Right. And so you were uh, marching at that problem a number mm -hmm. of years ago. Uh, so continue. Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, at, at the time, um, you know, yeah. So I had this idea. I had taken some inspiration from uh, the Rubin report and his success. I mean, Dave Rubin at that time, uh, you know, he's not quite this way now. And I like Dave. And I consider Dave a friend. I've gotten to know him a little bit. Um, but in those years, Dave was really sort of brokering kind of, you know, heterodox conversations from across the spectrum in ways that really seemed to be bringing the best out of people who you knew, politically speaking, were worlds apart. And so there were some there were some examples of this in different spaces. But I just thought that there was a way to sort of model that culture and then scale it out in a manner that would allow it to translate to direct sort of social mobilization on the ground around not just sort of like political projects, but possibly community development sort of sort of activities and various other various other fronts. When people come together in a creative and entrepreneurial spirit, there's no limit to what they can do to solve real world problems. And so I had this idea and I looked at Better Angels and they were already having the sorts of relationship building conversations and events in local communities that I had wanted a thought a media network structure could kind of build towards. Lead to, yeah, yeah, exactly. totally. But, you know, their website was kind of like, you know, text heavy and pixelated. They had a Facebook page that sort of was abandoned, a YouTube channel with a couple of nice clips, but nothing else going on. And so I just thought to myself, I thought, well, maybe there's room for my media network idea within this organization. It was a long shot, but I drove down to San Diego, sat in on a workshop with my pal Luke Phillips, who I think you, you may also know. My buddy looks like Pete Buttigieg and is now a longstanding uh, Brave Rangers volunteer, scholar, historian, young guy. And um, presented my media network idea to David Blankenhorn, who was at that workshop. And so was Bill Doherty. He ran the workshop. Peter Yarrow, Peter, Paul, and Mary was there too, playing the guitar and, and singing. Um, and uh, David was thrilled with the idea Ultimately, I was hired uh, to build out the media network for, for Better Angels. Still wound up being faced with a lot of the limitations I had before. You know, we didn't really have any money for it. I also it wasn't really my competence. I had the vision, but I didn't really have, you know, much experience of any kind of production media. But I was brought on board to build out the media network structure. David committed to me from the very beginning. He wanted Better Angels to be a platform for me as a public intellectual and a public voice, uh, as a writer and so forth on issues of race and polarization. And I very quickly just became sort of a general kind of spokesperson and then national ambassador, as well as a larger sort of strategist because I had community organizing experience and various other things. I, I very quickly became a spokesperson and strategist for the organization, broadly speaking. And, um, you know, and so that was March of 2018. 
And at which point, you know, John about, Wood Jr. Been four and, years. Yep. The histories converged. And so that's where the that's where the stories meet. And, um, you know, what eventually leads me here to be in with you. So uh, why the name change uh, from Better Angels to, Bra to Braver Angels? Was there like mm -hmm. a process behind that? Well, yeah. So it was a couple of things. I like Braver Angels, by the way. I don't, you know. Well, good. I, I'm glad. It, it actually was my uh, my my name child. Um, and uh, there are two things that happened. One was, once again, uh, trademark <laughs> dispute. Someone didn't like Better Angels. <laughs> yeah, no, somebody, somebody with more money than we had was a bit upset about that, and things were ultimately resolved amicably, so, you know, it's, it's okay. But um, we had to step away from the original name, and, you know, the name Better Angels is uh, taken from Abraham Lincoln quotation. You know, Abraham Lincoln... Yeah, I thought this is where it was from. Yeah, well, yeah, that's absolutely right. It was, uh, you know... Uh, referenced, um, you know, touching the better angels of our nature yep. in his first inaugural address on the eve of the Civil War, right? Trying to sort of stave off the, the apocalypse that was to, was to come. So better angels, that's where the name, original name came from. I advocated for a shift to braver angels for two reasons. One of them practical, uh, being the fact that I thought a similar sounding name would allow us to preserve as much brand recognition as we could, right? Uh, they're close. I, right. I'd, I'd assume they're the same. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, on that front, it seemed like a sound choice. But also, you know, it, there is uh, something of a... You know what I prefer? What's that? Courageous angels. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe the trademark is available on that. One, so, you know, Probably. You know. Oh. Um, but the other, but the more substantive um, reason was, you know, there is a cottage industry of, um, you know, Philanthropic well, of of nonprofit organizations and foundations committed to depolarization and bridge building work. This field is now, in the last few years, expanded rapidly. Other players have stepped out into about it, it. Yeah. right, and so it's now becoming more sort of firmly um, formed and it's maturing. But but you've had sort of a cottage, you know, uh, sector for a while doing this kind of work within which. You know, the value and virtue of empathy has always been foundational. And, and, and this is the uh, thing that uh, mm -hmm. is destroying us, in my opinion, mm -hmm. is that if someone's your ideological enemy, mm -hmm. uh, they're now not just worthless as a human being, they're actually not human or dehumanized. Mm -hmm. uh, and so whatever vitriol you direct at them is yeah. somehow now justified. Right. Like that, that's the core problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it is, it is. And there's so much more we can say about that, but the reason, and, and owing to that fact, you know, in this sort of sector as it had existed, you know, there's naturally a deep sort of emphasis on the value of empathy in being sort of the spirit that guides bridge building work. And of course, because, you know, in order to really develop a deep relationship of trust with you, if, if especially if we are tribal, you know, opposites, it's going to be important for me to be able to demonstrate the fact that I can kind of, you know, put myself in your shoes to sort of see things as you see things, to demonstrate the fact that I, you know, have some understanding of who you are, what's important to you, and that I care enough to have that understanding and demonstrate it. So the emphasis on em empathy is, is needed. But it, it, it had long been evident to me that to really 
pursue this work into sort of the heat of America's tribal and political conflicts, which is where it needs to go, it takes more than just being empathetic. You really do need courage. You really do need bravery. Increasingly, to to unfortunately. Well, and, and for, for two, uh, two immediate reasons. One, the most obvious one, is that you try and reach out to people who have, you know, uh, have been culturally kind of like, you know, pitted against you. There's going to be oftentimes a level of distrust uh, towards you and maybe even a tendency towards being a little bit mean towards you, maybe just on the maybe. basis, just maybe just on the basis of the fact that you're from the other party. But people in your own party, your own comrades and compatriots will oftentimes look at you with some degree of suspicion and maybe even, you know, a sense that you've sold out you know, on the basis of the fact that you do choose to empathize with people who think differently because people on each side are, you know, to whatever degree, find themselves committed to the notion that, look, I can't, I, I can't, you know, honor Great this person. With those people. Yeah, yeah exactly. So. I can't socialize with, with these people. I can't keep company with them because if I do, I'm entertaining fascists. If I do, I'm entertaining people who hate America, right? And if you're doing that and you say you agree with me, but you're friends with them, then I've got a little bit of suspicion towards you too. Mm -hmm. So bravery wound up being a necessary point of emphasis. And I think that it helped to, to fortify the message of Braver Angels in a way that has been more empowering for people who have come into our ranks and has had influences on the larger space as well. I agree and I like it. And I want to affirm that one of the most noxious beliefs nowadays is that if I sit with you, yeah. then somehow I'm vouching for everything you believe in about everything under the sun. And right. if there's one other statement that it's like, oh, you, you know, hung out with that person and thus you, you blessed everything about them. And if they go, you know, like the, the entire thing is like, yeah. well, you know, I talk to people in real life all the time and like, I, I'm, you know, <laughs> like I'm trying to agree with everything that, yeah. um, that, that they say. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a word that bugs me. And it's funny now because I, I, I you know, I'm something of a public figure and I, I, mm -hmm. I like have, um, uh, uh, platform, but this term platforming, it's like, mm. oh, you platformed this person. Right. You have like given them uh, elevation. You've given them legitimacy. Legitimacy. It's like you bless this person who is intrinsically illegitimate and you're just mm. like, you know, <laughs> you know like, like, like when did yeah. sitting with someone somehow like have this kind of weight to it where mm -hmm. like you're like oh can't talk to that person and there's so many people now who uh suffer and struggle with this where mm -hmm. there's like oh you know it's like uh, i i can't be seen with this person like it, it's really uh it's worse than counterproductive there are two things i mean there are multiple things but there 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 are two things that i'll mention that are intersecting i think it's like how the heck are you going to bring people together if you're like not allowed to you know, have a conversation. Well, like that's the, the thing. thing for, mind, for, mind for, for, for many folks, there's a limit to the value of bringing people together, right? And so there, there are two things that I see sort of intersecting here that are, that are most salient. You know, one is the fact that we've come to a point now in American life where, as opposed to times past, where Republicans and Democrats, you know, different parties, but there's very little like deep-seated social animosity between the parties, sure. you know. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, you know, there were polls taken, I think at least in the 60s, asking you, the you, question, if, you, if your child married a Republican or a Democrat, would you care? And it's like 5% of Americans care. People were, were, you know, but if they married a Catholic, now? right? 
I'm not sure what the exact figure is, but it is well upwards of 50%. Yeah, that was 52, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it's upwards of 50%. Um, now nobody cares what religion you are. It's a question of what, you know, what your political party Well, you know, po is. politics is the new religion. Well, uh, yes. And, and, and so unfortunately, media reasons. tribes, when I was sitting with Arthur Brooks, he said mm -hmm. that like media tribes are the new uh, mini religions. Well, so the difference is- You're forming a new mini religion. Well, <laughs> you know, civic religion is a phrase that has some history to it. And you might be, I don't, you, maybe you know Eric Liu. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, so there's some Eric talks about. But the, so the differences between us have extended to being beyond the pale for people in a way to where, you know, it's not just that we have a good faith disagreement about something that's important, but we have a, you know, I can infer at least that we have a moral disagreement on things that are characterologically determinative of your value as a human being yeah. in some respects. It's right? very dark. And so that makes us not want to interact. But you couple that with the fact that we live in an attention economy within which we are competing for space to be heard. We have more opportunities and more platforms to be heard than ever, but the competition over that, I think, is probably fiercer than it has ever been. And so I think people have a sense of, okay, if you have a platform, holy shit, we all want a platform, especially a platform that people actually come to. And so if you have a platform, you have ethical responsibility, you've got to use that resource, you know, wisely, you know. If you put give that resource to somebody who's going to use it, to advance systemic racism, just for for example, you know, um, then you are you know uh, you are investing in that uh, anti-human project. You are investing in that project of hate, uh, and so you know um, the intensity of sort of the competition within the kind of you know information and and you know attention economy meets this moral paranoia. And I, I don't say moral paranoia to be dismissive of it because, you know, look, I, I, I get it. I mean, people have deeply felt reasons for not wanting to elevate, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos or whoever, you know, whoever it is you're, you're talking about. Although I guess we've all forgotten about Milo at this point. Um, but a fine example. I got it. Yeah. Right. Um, but it, yes, it's, it's created this context in which we need to now make the case for why it is utterly imperative, not just for the survival of democracy, but also for the advancement, to put in the racial justice context, of a larger uh, project um, of, of equity and equality and yeah. social justice in American life to be able to engage our neighbors. Yes. Right? In constructive discourse. We have to make that case anew yes. now in 2022. Yeah, that, that, that's the case I'm making as well, man. I have, I think a lot of people know this about me, but like, I, I think that we need to make big changes. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the status quo is working. Um, but I, I also don't think that our current structures are actually conducive to major changes. Uh, and so you have to try and shift those structures. In order to shift those structures, you need to build a coalition of people that might not agree on a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. but can agree that this situation is not working, that we're getting more and more polarized, that we're turning on each other in various ways. We are in danger, in my view, of, of falling into widespread political violence mm. uh, uh, over the next number of months, mm. let, let's say. Um, so uh, I, 
I mean, I see it too, how these things have interlinked in mm -hmm. a way, but I, I think that they're, again, corrosive uh, and um, keeping us from solving the real problems. Yeah. Like there, there's this multi-billion dollar set of incentives to uh, inflame and anger us yes. in our own kind of echo chambers. Right. Uh, and then there's you uh, and me <laughs> and some other people who yeah. we wish we had billions of dollars yeah. that we could, yeah. you know, yeah. put, put, put to work mm -hmm. in, in various ways. Mm -hmm. um, so Bravery Angels, I know, is uh, growing. Mm -hmm. um, you're saying that the space itself is getting more mm -hmm. resources and attention, which is wholly appropriate. Yeah. Um, what is upcoming for you? First, you share my concern level about what, what may be around the corner for mm -hmm. us in this country. And second, what are you working on? What are you excited about with Braver Angels? Mm -hmm. uh, and also, if someone is inclined to participate in or help what I think is a tremendous organization, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, how can they do so? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for those questions. Um, first of all, yes, I mean, I, I do share your assessment, honestly, Andrew. I mean, look, we've already seen yeah, we've political seen violence. It. Sure. You know, you know, January 6th, but also the summer of 2020 and so forth, you know. Uh, and, um, and also after January 6th, uh, there were dozens of Republicans who were ready to uh, vote to uh, impeach Trump or investigate what happened or whatnot. They all got death threats and most all of them backed down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about political violence, I'm going to suggest that rep that uh, constituents threatening uh, their representatives, families, and whatnot, right. like should be classified in that category, mm -hmm. and it's completely having an effect. And mm -hmm. we're not paying enough attention to the Peter Myers and the Adam Kinzingers mm -hmm. and the Liz Cheney's who tried to buck the trend and said, "Look, like I think this is right," because mm -hmm. they, you know, like they they have had uh, personal threats uh, against yeah. them in serious ways. It takes serious courage to take the stands that they've taken, you know, and if you're a Republican, you know, listening to us who supports, you know, Donald Trump, you might disagree with the stance that they've taken, but recognize the fact that these are, I think, sincere folks. They yes. are coming from a place of courage. They're principled. Like, they, like, how is it that taking that stand? I mean, it, 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 it's clearly from a, a place of principle because it's not serving your interests. It's well, not right. serving your interests politically or personally. No, no, it's, it's, it's not. I mean, their future in the Republican Party, in terms of any greater influence, you know, is, is done, at least with respect to the Why party. Why do we need a third party, man? All right, continue. Stands, right? Um, yeah, there you go. But the, um, but I share your assessment. Um, so in terms of what's coming up for Braver Angels, look, these are, this is a key year. And these next few years, yep. I mean, listen, man, you know, um, we are in a moment in American life right now where you have widespread distrust of the institutions generally, but of the electoral yep. process in particular. Yep. There's actually a way in which, of course, it manifests uh, on the left in terms of, you know, believing that our structures are geared towards voter suppression and so forth. And there are definitely good faith arguments to be had, you know, over the way in which the system needs to be reformed. But on the right, the belief that, you know, shit is just flat out stolen fraudulently this leads to a circumstance in which people, if people both believe that that is true and also believe that there is not sufficient goodwill within our institutions and our body politic to be able to hear out each other's concerns and lead towards intelligent reforms of the system that may allow us to reestablish trust, then what option will people see for themselves other than resorting to the most extreme behavior that they can, you know, 
tolerate in order to make their voices heard or otherwise just find ways to kind of divorce themselves from larger society, which, you know, uh, is part it also of feeds into the fact that there are many, many uh, men in particular who've been displaced uh, economically and socially. Yes, it does. Uh, and so you're, mm -hmm. you have a lot of dry tinder. That's right. That's right. Because the 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 contempt is not just for the electoral process. It's for every institution, in, in, in major institution in society. Yes, it's for the presidency. It's for Congress. It's for the electoral system. It's for the courts. But it's also for the financial system. It's for Hollywood and the media, media in, in the media industry. Um, it's for the education system, right? Yeah. Believing that our professors are just there to indoctrinate our students and so forth. And again, you know, you, you go, you know, you look on the left and there's a sense that all of this is just sort of white supremacist architecture anyway, right? And so, but with respect to the specific question of our confidence in the electoral system, um, all of these things are coming to a head and that's really coming to a head because we have a, we have a date with that question, 2022 midterms, but then presidential election in 2024, where we are going to vote, there's going to be a shift in power, or, you know, you know rearranging of power, you know, following that. And then there's going to be the question of, do we believe that it's, it's legitimate? Donald Trump is still here. Donald Trump has not given an inch, you know, in terms of what he believes or says he believes was the case about, you know, the 2020 election. And you do have larger forces that are pushing that narrative forward, right? Okay, so Braver Angels, in, in upcoming weeks, um, but I think it's okay for me to share this with you here, we are um, launching uh, an initiative, uh, and you'll see the details of it roll out. And this is going to be in partnership with uh, significant uh, national uh, partner uh, and various different organizations uh, to basically seed Braver Angels workshops uh, across the country. Uh, we have programming that is unfolding in Congress now, working with the Select Committee for the Modernization Fantastic. of Congress. That's right. Uh, but these programs are meant to be seated in state houses and local governments and potentially even school boards across wow. America mobilizing our national organizing infrastructure, but joining hands with various other partners uh, to push things forward. And, um, you know, the only reason I'm not, you know, saying more about it is because... Yeah, I, I got to leave some for the press announcement. Yeah, man. exactly. Don't, don't want to step in front of uh, our PR, PR It's very folks, exciting, though. Right? It, it is. And see, the, the, the power of this isn't just in the context of you know, planting workshops in, in local governments. Because people will come up to us and they'll say, okay, well, you know, I can see it being a good thing that you have city councilmen or state assembly, you know, persons uh, engaging in a red-blue workshop. And they are impactful, you know, even for elected officials. But people make the case that there's a difference between an elected official, uh, between a regular, you know, you know, Joe or Jane in the neighborhood whose chief issue with polarization is their inability to hang out with each other versus state legislators who are institutionally it's embedded, different. who yeah. have surrounding structural interests. But the power of this initiative isn't just in terms of seeding the workshops. It's, it's also owing to mobilizing you know, a larger community of Americans to engage their elected officials and engage each other in an actionable pathway towards 
pushing their elected officials to model the culture that they themselves are calling for and organizing around as communities of constituents. And so you don't just have a methodology that's going to be participated in, but you have the rallying of voters, right, saying this is the kind of politics we want to see. This is the kind of change you know, we want to see made manifest. And in the course of doing, you know, you exercise people's organizational muscles to work alongside of each other, right? So look, I mean, we're, we're going to be starting, you know, um, relatively small here. I mean, we're going to be piloting in, in, in particular areas, seeing what we learn and scaling out. But, you know, over the course of not just this year, but the few years to come, especially as we get into 2024, the serious goal here is to be able to mobilize a significant enough portion of America. And on a percentage basis, I don't think it has to be all that it high. It does not need to be that all. high on a percentage I mean, basis you, know, you can fall well short of 1% of voters and make an amazing impact on, you know, the culture and the flow of, you know, politics in our society. But the idea is to get to the point at which we achieve a critical mass that's able to be impactful, building up braver angels, reach and structure and apparatus, but also working with partners from across the spectrum as well, right? And I, you know, I can't say this clearly enough, man. What we do is for folks who are, you know, social justice activists, the Black Lives Matter, and Trump supporting populists, you know, on on the right. The question isn't what you believe politically. The question is, are you willing to see the humanity in your fellow American, right? Are Amen. you willing to acknowledge and treat that person with dignity? If so, you got a seat at our table and you can join us uh, as a member and potentially a volunteer if you want to get your hands dirty yeah. uh, at BraverAngels.org. Well, thank you, John Wood Jr., for being a very effective ambassador for a very, very important organization that I love. Um, everyone I've met from Braver Angels has been really uh, human, empathetic, patriotic, principled, and brave. Uh, and I cannot wait to do everything we can to support you and your work. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to our mutual friend, Silas Kulkarni, uh, who's been a tremendous uh, leader within Braver Angels and who's really been a tremendous advocate within our larger community for the Forward Party uh, and for the movement that obviously you've been inspiring Americans with for some time now. And uh, I'm just grateful that we've been able to make this connection and, you know, look forward to Forward Party to work plus Braver Angels <laughs> uh, equals maybe democracy survives. Maybe we continue <laughs> to appreciate each other's yeah. common yeah. humanity, even if we don't agree on everything. And set the paradigm for democracy that may be better than it's ever been. Yeah. I mean, heck, let's let's not settle for, you know, survival. Uh, right. let, let's shoot for <laughs> flourishing. There you go. There you go. John, thank you so much. Thank you, Brother Andrew. Appreciate you.